Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. I am your host, your guide, and your friend along this journey of becoming more awesome and our pursuit of learning from the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. You know about the show. You're listening to the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. I am honored to be in your ears, and today we are going back on book tour. So many of you, I shared a previous episode of a book tour event in Seattle with my good friend, Mr. Brandon Stanton, and I've shared another one with, with Seth Godin. This time I'm in San Francisco for a, a completely different conversation with Jason Kalkanis. Now, Jason is an investor, long, long time host of a very successful podcast called This Week in Startup. And he really does. <laughs> Jason comes out swinging. Uh, we talk about growing and dealing with large missed opportunities, about how starting small is the big secret to success. Everyone in our culture is obsessed with scale. And we look at all these successful people and successful startups and companies and everyone we're all constantly comparing and measuring to has had astronomical success. And you know what? Starting it off thinking like that is the wrong way. I go into great detail about how starting small is the new awesome. Um, also, I put forward, uh, I think, a new lens on how to think about not just success and failure, but when to continue and when to stop. Uh, there's a really good discussion that follows a lot of questions from the audience, uh, and I know you're going to love this episode. I'm going to get out of the way so you can listen to the wizardry interview skills of Mr. Jason Kalkanis and my... my um, doing everything I can to keep up and sharing a little bit about my story, about the creative calling. And I just got to say, before we get into the show, thank you again so much for all your support. Um, everything is still going wildly successful with the book, and it's because of you, and I don't take that for granted for one second. So thank you for listening. I'm going to get out the way and enjoy today's show. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Live for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Hey, 
Okay. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, we're in it. Alice we're in it now. Back. Um, so uh, I finished the book today. Thank you. Well, as you the, thank someone for finishing a book? I don't know what you say when someone says I finished your book. And it's great. It's an amazing read. And you've had an epic career. I thought we would start with your entrepreneurial career. Okay. And then get into the creativity and why you wrote the book and how creativity um, kind of manifests itself. You started um, an app at the beginning of the app store. Yes. And this app was called, well, let's leave the name out of it for okay. now. Does anybody know this story? Okay, good. You're gonna love Actually, it. Actually, raise your hand if you know the story. Okay, there's like there's eight some OGs people here. in the there's some OGs building. in the building. I remember this time. Um, you thought, "Wow, the iPhone allows apps, and it has a camera, and there's this new concept called filters." So, people had been using social networks, and people had digital cameras, but now you came up with this idea to put a social network with a camera. And you thought, gee, people are not very good photographers, and the camera's not that great, so why don't we let them scroll through a list of filters? And you could click it and then share it with your friends. Sounds remarkably novel, doesn't it? And this was called... It, best camera. Best camera. You hired an outsourced development firm, and lo and behold, you wake up one day, and you tell the story in the book. And I thought we'd start with the most painful moment in your life, or as a professional, yeah. um, which was you wake up one day and your phone is going crazy and Instagram gets bought for a billion dollars and you had the idea a year before them, two years before them? Yeah. Take us to that moment <laughs> of losing a billion dollars. <sighs> Where were you? Uh, I was at home in bed when my phone started ringing because I have a bunch of friends on the East Coast. And so my phone started going ding, 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 ding. And I was like, all right, what, okay. Uh, all right, I need to get up and pay attention to this. Uh, but I was quickly um, put right back in that place where we all go as entrepreneurs where you start asking yourself, what if? What if? What was possible? Where did I go wrong? And the reality was this was some time after... Uh, without going too far into the weeds, when you're a first mover in something, there's also, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, but there's also, uh, if you're a creator or an entrepreneur, you're also aware that there's disproportionate risk for going first. Hmm. The person who invented the parachute, you know? So there are lots of other examples. Well, first, we, we have an expression, <laughs> first guy up the hill takes the arrows. Yeah, there That's you go. industry. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had taken a lot of arrows. Um, and in truth, I tried to downplay it both to my friends in the moment and to my colleagues. Uh, and then I, I went into to work at the studio where all the people who had worked on this thing. And it's one thing to like, you know, I had this uncle. He's like, I invented cable television. You know, I had the idea first. Sure. And, and then, you know, there's the different thing of actually building the thing and then having it be the app of the year. 
um, long before anyone else thought about photo sharing. And there's this. What year was that app of the year? That was 2009. Nine. Yeah, which is crazy, right? Um, So it's the 10th year anniversary (laughs) of of you losing a billion dollars. Has yes. it, does it, does the edge come off? Uh, and For there's, sure. a, there's a happy ending. We'll get to that in a Yeah, moment. yeah. The edge comes off, and I think that's part of being a creator. And, you know, this is something that I'm going to try and, throughout the course of the night, through uh, Jason's questions, start to draw a bigger picture on what it means to be a creator. Uh, and I believe deeply in just continuing to get up. And it's almost like a metaphor for life, right? Mm -hmm. The the ability to put something out there. Sometimes it soars, sometimes it flops. You're early, you're late. It's really just about the the act of making. And and if you can get benefits like a billion dollars along along with it, then that's a nice it's a nice benefit. But that's not the that's not the the reason to get up, uh, and or, or and to create. I think, you know, that was the first photo feed, like a photo feed didn't exist. I had to get special, I had many, many meetings at Apple about the concept of a photo feed being um, policed by the community because there was no, they didn't exist before. And it's, it's, these are hard things to think of not existing. Like a, a, obviously, you know, you take your camera, you take a picture and then you share it. Like that didn't exist 10 years ago. And so it was A, fun to be a prime mover in that. B, the loss of a billion dollars was painful. I think it was way more painful when I knew that we were getting our ass kicked Mm. because, you know, I was a cap table of one, hadn't taken a dollar of venture, was proud not to, and was out in front by two years and millions of users. I didn't really feel like I had to. And Mm. that was, I think, when Silicon Valley applies what it's the best in the world at doing, it was a very... uh, Let's how we say quick and painless death, with except the pain part. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if we go back to that moment, and I think it's really great for you to explore this uh, pain and suffering uh, in public. Very public. So we'll Thank just do you, it Jason. for one or two more minutes. Um, but if you look back on that, is the mistake that you thought, I don't need the venture capital and that'll be a distraction um, and I don't need to go big, and you kind of rested on your laurels? Or do you think on some psychological level, maybe you were scared of it getting big, or maybe you were scared of how much money you could actually make, and, and that you kind of liked the, the intimacy of it being small and boutique? I think that's very insightful. All of those things have gone through my mind. Uh, I think, honestly, if I go back... I would not be able to do anything different because without, again, going too deep, I wrote a contract with this other party and the contract just specified that, that I outsourced development and they were going to take the revenue because this is back when apps were three bucks. So we had a, an agreement where the revenue share was 70% to them until they had their $250,000, whatever it cost to develop the app. And then it would flip and it would revert and I would get 70% and they would get 30% for the life of the app. And I knew that apps were going to be multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, this particular developer had just done the, the beer chug app and the lighter app, and they thought that apps were like flash in the pan. They were gimmicks, they were they like were, pet rocks. Exactly, and I believed something different. But in the contract, we wrote that every month we would do a new, um, we would ship a new version. And now you understand that in software development, what a new version is, is it can be you know, massive, massive difference. Like you can either add the ability to follow and like friends and all that kind of stuff, or you can put it out in German. Hmm. And what they try, what once they believed that this thing, when we put it out in the world, 
that it was going to take 13 months for this to pay them back. And this was just some rough calcs on what they'd done before. Yeah. We had them paid back fully in six days. Wow. Yeah, so you start doing the math, a couple hundred grand in six days, revenue share. And so what in the contract, we couldn't specify what the future 13 iterations were going to be because you're a year, you know, wow. you can't see into the future a year. So we just specified the number. That led to a very, uh, they were unmotivated to continue to develop because they were looking at the next shiny object. Hey, we just done the app of the year, so let's get another person in here with a million dollars. And the point is, I, I wrote the contract in a way that I would have had to have written it because I couldn't see the future. And that ultimately was what bit me in the ass. The thing that, the part two of that is this is at a time when the app store, you you had no idea if you were going to be allowed in the club that could submit apps. Right. It was it two days or, or two weeks or two months before your application was accepted. Mm -hmm. And they had an application that had been accepted. So I gave them the code, you know, I paid them to develop it. Right. I owned it. But they own the iTunes account. But they own the iTunes account. Brutal. The most brutal. <laughs> Have you ever spoken to that developer group again? Well, here's the deal. Halfway through, so then, you know, when this happens and they're not performing in the contract, they're in breach, we threaten lawsuits, we threaten lawsuits, we get the lawyers, the lawyers are talking, and then they are acquired by Deloitte. Oh, well, that makes things go smoothly. Yeah, yes. <laughs> That's so then I'm fighting Deloitte. Yeah. And again, short story too long. It was incredibly painful. I appreciate you starting the night with that. And But that's like that is a, a very huge public failure. And that pressure uh, then made another diamond, didn't it? You, I think, probably had to take that long walk. Did, was this the greatest opportunity of my life? Did I fuck it up? And lo and behold, you have another idea, Creative Live. It is, I think that there, there is that silver lining. And, and in the book, I talk about my grandfather passing and I was given his cameras as a part of the will. And that ultimately like, kicked my career into photography. So um, if, the, if that's the silver lining for me becoming a photographer, the silver lining for starting Creative Live which today is orders of magnitudes more impactful than that than best camera ever was, not than Instagram, unfortunately, but uh, it it did. And I think the the pressure that you talked about making a diamond, um, I, I found out just enough about venture capital, just enough about people wanting to buy your company, just enough about the app store, but mo most importantly, what technology could do to scale creativity. Mm. And I watched it in real time. I'll never forget. We launched the the best camera app in in 2009 in September, and New Year's Eve, I was watching in the first photo feed of the world in apps, I was watching New Year's happen around the, world. around the world on this little thing that I had developed. And it really became clear to me that the future of sharing photographs was A, that photography is the only universal language. There's 7,106 languages and I can show anyone in this room a photograph, doesn't matter what language you are, doesn't matter what race, what age, what orientation, what gender. And if I show you a photograph of a mother with her newborn child, every single person in this room gets it immediately. And so I realized that that was really the power of what I was watching in real time. And when you do that, you start to think of the data that's being captured. Oh my gosh, there's more green showing up in Hong Kong. Therefore, we need to, know, we need to get more green dye to Hong Kong to make more clothes or whatever, like you start realizing that if, if it really hits scale, which is at what we're at today, that the concept of a photographic social network is 
you know, transformative for culture. I thought one of the most fascinating parts of the book was your description of when you tried to become a professional photographer, the reaction you got from the community which you loved, which you wanted to be part of, and you wanted to unlock the secrets and perhaps share them with the world through the Creative Live platform. And they did not want you. For sure. And this was actually, this predates Creative Live by uh, a long time, but conceptually what you said is very accurate, and that is we are humans, we resist change, right? And if someone tells you or shows you a future where your life is going to be harder, and by your life I mean in the established universe of professional creators, in this case professional photographers, you say, wait a minute, that thing that you've built your entire career on, this, tr this like special lighting technique, you mean everyone's going to be able to see and understand and know that intuitively or in a two-minute YouTube video in like three or four or five years from now? And I'm telling them this to their faces. I'm coming into these trade organizations and little camera clubs and meetups. And I'm saying, hey, here's what the internet's going to do for creativity and for arts and for basically information is going to be able to move really quickly. And you tell people that they don't like you. And it's really about, speaking of arrows, like I'm taking the arrows. I'm saying, I'm just telling you what the future is going to be like. Yeah. And, and if you are in a position where that is protected and anyone who's threatening that uh, is basically a threat to you, then that is the role that I played. And I do find that that's, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have different gifts. Uh, Bezos, master operator, uh, jobs, product visionary, little old Chase Jarvis, I just have the ability to see around the corner when it happens to be around tools and creativity. And, you know, go back to your original question about, about Creative Live, Everything that I learned from the worst and biggest professional mistakes in my career, biggest, very, very public failure, um, was, wait a minute, this is something that's replicable. All we need to do is put the right ingredients in the right order and create something and put it out in the world. I needed to know a little bit more about managing people. I need to know a little bit more about venture capital. I need Legal to know, contracts. I need to know a little bit more about legal contracts, a little bit more about having in-house developers. Uh, and it was through all of those things that, as you mentioned, Creative Live was born. And Creative Live was also born out of that same image of those photographers who didn't want their world to change. I knew it was about to change. And you can see around the corner. And if I actually tried to bring that to them as a gift, and by them, I mean the established professional photographers. And that's the cool thing about, and I want to you know, connect my personal journey to your journey right now. The distance from wherever you are right now to where you want to be, maybe it's a thousand hours or a hundred hours or 10,000 hours. It doesn't matter. It's one decision. And to me, when I started realizing that I wanted to do this and that, boy, I wanted to be a photographer, I wanted to create Creative Live and each of these big swings in our lives. And for me, it was like, am I prepared to go do 10,000 hours of the work or whatever the right number is and then I and when I said yes to me the thing that was the was a catapult and is so empowering is that it really was one decision and when you start doing it every day it's not about the hours and the time that you're putting it's about the decision that you made two days two weeks or two years ago and that you're still living that sort of dream and so to be able to do that with photography and then through this terrible mistake uh, 
learning how to do it in, in quote, a different or better or um, a way that worked with the incumbent system and to, to allow me to build Creative Live, I would, again, I wouldn't change anything. And for people who don't know, Creative Live does what? Creative Live is the world's largest learning platform specifically targeted for creators and entrepreneurs. It's where people like Sir Richard Branson, Brene Brown, Tim Ferriss, uh, Arianna Huffington, where folks like that go to share their views, uh, teach classes, do podcasts, etc., on topics from photography, design, entrepreneurship. And there's hundreds, dozens, thousands of uh, classes? There's uh, more than 2,000 classes, more than 10,000 hours of learning content there. Uh, we've served tens of millions of people, given away billions and billions of minutes of video. Um, and it's, very, it's still very much a community. I mean, it's, it doesn't have hundreds of millions of users, it has tens. And it turns out that that's a, a great number for both a business and a community of yeah. like-minded people exchanging ideas and, and learning together. I remember when I met uh, Mika Salmi, a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. He had uh, taken over the CEO slot from you for a couple of years. Um, the original device I thought was like one of the most clever things I'd ever heard. And it took me a while to get my head around it. It was free to watch the class live, yeah. but if you wanted the archive, you had to pay. Yes. Is that still the device? It's still a device. A device. Yeah. This, is, this was our sort of um, our on-ramp into helping people understand what it is that we were doing. And you know, we developed a live online broadcast platform in 2009, 2010. I would not recommend that. <laughs> that is yeah, that technology did not yet exist. Right. It was, a, it was a very heavy lift. But what we wanted to start playing with was, uh, was real-time internet. And to be able to have people join in from all over the world. It, our first class had 50,000 people in it. I remember this. Yeah, it was it, insane. And, yeah, it was insane. And, and ultimately, this idea of people getting together, you know, people in Ohio and um, Alaska and Tokyo and Russia all sitting essentially in a similar in the same classroom watching something in real time there's a certain power and a gravity there that I loved uh, I do think the business model was innovative we knew we had to keep that business model until we had a critical mass of content and then we could say okay great now if you want to come take a wedding photography class we got that right here uh, but we, we needed a gimmick before we had a full library of yeah. content. It, it made it a there there, as they say. Yeah, exactly. It was and there it was, there. For sure. And it was interesting and different. And it was also, which was you know key to my ethos as a creator, there was something there for everyone for free on day one. My understanding is that this company is now making tens of millions of dollars a year. Yes, it's working. We've uh, raised... Over 50 million no. a year in revenue? More than 10, less than 50. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've got you. Yeah, um, we'll play the game. But um, <laughs> I, I have heard this thing is printing money, uh, which means you're well on your way to having another unicorn. Well, you know, I, I'm... Is that important to you now? Is it important to you that this become big and you win? And if so, why? Not only is it not important, I think it's a distraction. Got it. I, and, and it's hard to say this in this town especially, but I think this town does a, a great job of making gigantic companies, and I think it does a terrible job of making good companies. Hmm. Unpack that for a minute. Sure. Why, I, why I is that? I had a feeling that Jason was going to ask me if to follow up on that. Um, no, this is, and again, this is why I'm, I'm excited to be on the stage with you, because you know the right questions to ask, Jason. And to me, what they've done in 
for those of, this is a crash course lesson in venture capital. You have 20 companies, you put $10 million into, t into 20 companies, you expect that 18 of those companies take that $10 million and light it on fire in three to five years or faster. So all of those companies go to zero. You have one company that gives you three to five to 10x return, that's a pretty good company, and then you have one company that makes you a billion dollars. So let's do the math. Let's pretend that second company doesn't exist just for a second. We, one company makes you a billion, you subtract 180 million from these other 18 companies that all lost a million, and so you basically have an 82% margin on a billion dollars. So that's what venture capital is in a nutshell. Let's talk about that company number two, that three to five, eight X. In this, in, the, in this valley, you're, they look at you like, I don't understand you. Like you're not super special, but you don't suck. Yeah. And they, you know, it's like when you talk to your dog and your dog goes like that. That's the way the venture community looks at a company that's a good company. And I also venture to believe, you see that double use of venture there? Yeah, um, I got it. That in that, in, that, in that aggregate of 18 companies, there were some, probably some pretty good companies that if they didn't have someone putting their thumb on them, like you have to grow at 100% year over year. 100% year over year. Yeah, that they would be really good companies. I think the expectation now is 3x year over there year. There you go. Yeah, yeah, see, this is It's why. jet fuel, let's be honest. Yeah, like, yeah. And if you want to get on the tip of a rocket, yep. if you're opting into that, that's a certain type of individual. And For I think sure. that is the confusion, yep. is some people don't understand. They just think like, well, why are you guys driving so fast? And it's like, well, we're trying to get orbit, yeah. and orbit equals a billion dollars. Right. right. Yeah, and, and again, I'm not trying to throw rocks, but I think that the, the narrative doesn't actually explicate that this is what really happens in this universe and it's that it's really an all or nothing game and what we're trying to do is just make an, a really good long-term company that is creating learning opportunities for tens of millions of people all over the world yet you still drank from the venture fountain yep i did and do you advise young people with great ideas to drink from that fountain knowing what you know no okay <laughs> Um, and I, it's, I, I, I'm going to qualify that. So there are instances where I would be, you know, be happy to advise the company and will make introductions to venture folks. Um, I think most businesses, it's been glorified to the point of nauseating and that there's just a lack of understanding. So I try and tell the real narrative, which is why I developed that little like 20 companies. This is what it actually looks like. Um, so I'm happy to recommend them for, for things that I think do have that potential, or more importantly, there's a certain set of chemistry that looks like this is what the founders want to do, the idea is the right time, and there's an opportunity in the market. I'm like, look, always triangulating those things as to decide whether I recommend that or not. But generally I say, the, and this is true for any creative thing. Right now there's someone who's in this room who wants to start a cafe. Do not go take a lease on a space, do not rent a bunch of ovens, do not hire a bunch of staff. Bake scones on Sunday. What's the smallest thing you can possibly do to get moving in your dream direction? And it's not the thing. If you build it with the end in mind, sure, the end in mind is you want to have a cafe someday and you want all the friends to gather and you want to have pour over coffees and all that. Great, start baking scones on Sunday and see what that feels like. And then next week, have some friends over and have them try your scones. 
and then in two months from now, then bring in the coffee. You do the pour over it. You see what I'm saying? Make something small. So that is my general advice to someone who wants to start a business. It's not run for venture capital. It's make something awesome. A prototype is worth a thousand meetings and a hundred conversations with venture people. If you're like, here it is, it works, and a thousand people are using it today. And, and this is where the book, I think, really shines, and I actually got a lot out of it, is you talk about the on-ramp so tactically and elegantly of, of becoming a creative. And you talk about, listen, if you can't write the novel, uh, maybe you write the short story. If you can't write the short story, just write the scene. And we both got influenced, I think, by Anne Lamont's book, Amazing. Bird by Bird. Has anybody read the book? Raise your hand. Okay, great book. Uh, another great book, after you buy the one in the back, um, where she just talks about bird by bird doing a little bit of that creativity a day. This is what trips people up. They think that creativity is all or nothing. And one of the great highlights of the book was you gave um, an example of a metaphor where a teacher, and I'll have you tell the story, uh, graded people on the weight of their projects. Tell that story, because yeah. this was eye-opening for me. Sure, it's, it's an apocryphal story, and I had to look up apocryphal when I was trying to find the word in the book. Apocryphal means no one's really sure if it's true, but it's just it's, there's so much lore around it that we just assume it's true. So there's a ceramics class, and the ceramics teacher divides the class, not dissimilar to how we are divided with this row right here. You all are to make one amazing pot. That's all you have to do for your grade this semester, make one amazing thing. You all, I'm grading you on how much, the volume, how much weight, how many pots, like what the volume, the number of pots that you make, that's how I'm grading you. Ready, go. So at the end of the semester, fast forward, not only did you do mediocre work, but you only did one mediocre thing. You all over here pre produced an abundance of amazing work. And I can look at your progress, the growth, and any individual person through making a bunch of different things. And we can look at the number, the volume of amazing things that came out when you were not concerned with the outcome of any one thing. You were literally making, just cranking out the art. I like to refer to Andy Warhol's question, uh, comment here, which is, while you're busy creating things, do not judge those things. Let other people judge them. And while they're judging, you get back to creating. How much of being a great artist is just not giving a fuck? A lot. Uh, keep going. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I'm glad you asked that question <laughs> because this is something that I have learned is true. And the best things in life, I believe, the best work that everyone in this room will ever do, will ever do, you will have to have people tell you not to do this work that this work is hard, that this is the wrong work, that you shouldn't be doing this work, that other people are better at this. And I'll quote Steve, or I'll quote, uh, this would be Bezos. You have to be willing to be misunderstood for very long periods of time in order to do your best work. And I'm glad that you opened the evening with my biggest failure because it was, I was bullheaded in that moment. When Apple tells you that they can't do a photo feed, sorry, we're not gonna do it, 99.95% of people, they just say, oh, Apple said no. I said, I need to talk to whoever the boss is because this is the future and I'm gonna help you understand the future. And after several meetings and a handful of lunches and like you start to like, the point is that I had to be misunderstood and I went to extraordinary lengths 
not to try and make everybody understand, but just to get the thing that I wanted to do out there. And here's the extra cool thing. What you're supposed to be doing is already inside you. You have like all the answers. We go hunting everywhere out there. Our culture tells us you should look like this. You should be like this. You should get this job. You should go to this school. And you know what? All of it's wrong because all those things are based on averages, right? And I understand when these, this message, these messages, they come from people who love you, the people who care about you, but what is it they want for you? They do not want you to take a crazy risk. They want you to be safe. They want you to be normal, to be loved, to be expect expected. And that comes from a good place, but it is our job because we have one sweet, precious life to turn that down, even from people who love you a lot. And this is where it's very hard and start to listen in here. This is why the book is called Creative Calling. It's not necessarily a call to be creative. It's creative and calling. And you put those two things together, you get what you're supposed to be doing. And to me, this is really, really interesting because culture is not, there's no evil genius telling you to do this. Culture wants, because it, it's easy to define if we all go the same speed limit and we all start school at this age and we move through this thing regimentedly and then at the end we, like all those things are predictable. That's how mass culture works. But the funny thing is that none of the people that we, or the people, we, rarely the people we celebrate do that. So there's this, this sort of juxtaposition of what creates extraordinary results and then what you hear from everybody that, you, that, that loves you. And so there's a confusing message that we get programmed with. And my book is largely about how to deprogram this cultural program. And again, no evil genius. No one's trying to get you to be not your best. But the reality is, is that you, are, you can't possibly be an average because you're a data point of one. An average needs like a bunch of, it needs 10 things divided by 10 or whatever. It, 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 you're a data point of one. So if you can deprogram these things and if you can understand, like this is, this is a very hard thing to do, which is why the book is 288 pages, is the answers are within you. And it might not be the actual thing, but what you're supposed to be doing is, that's in here. And we, we all like a map in our culture. We want to be handed a thing that says, if you go to this school and get these grades, then you end this job and you have this income and then you can live in this zip code. And it's understandable. It's a red dot and then it's this dashed line, go here. And then there's a little red X, this is where you end up. This is what we are sold. Does anyone's life ever look like the map that they were sold? This is just a question, anyone. Raise your hand if you bought the map and your life looks just like the map. Zero hands are up for those people listening on the podcast. <laughs> Here's what we are given, a compass. And what does a compass do? How is a compass different from a map? A compass points in a direction. A compass, the compass is here. It's not not here. Let's just call it here. And what we want in our culture when we're sold maps is we want to see everything. What if you can only see the next four or five steps? Do you take those steps? 
you don't take them when you're scared and after you've had some major, major failures or you have some success and you realize that you had, in order to have the success, you had to go against these things that everybody else wanted for you, then you start to say, okay, great, I'm willing to follow my compass. Because what happens on a compass? Compass just says, go that way. And it's like, well, I can't go through that wall. So you're gonna go around and then you get outside and then you're in the garden and you have to cross the street and then you go up the hill. You don't know where you're going, but you know what? Something crazy happens when you start paying attention to that compass. The compass that we all have, every person in this room has this compass. Life starts happening for us, not to us. Things start making sense. And we've, I don't care where you are in your life right now, you have felt this moment. You can, you've felt this feeling. You can look back when something was effortless, when you were around the people that you love and the people that loved you, when you were, you were doing a thing that made you feel great. Why do we not train our culture to listen to this? Why do we say, ignore this and then go, here's this map we're trying to sell you? Again, it's not because there's an evil genius, but it's because culture en masse tries to make us the same. And it's fine. I'm just saying that that's not where whatever it is that's in your mind right now that you're not doing, that you're supposed to be doing, this is the mechanism for getting there, not the map that culture is selling. And what role does fear play in all that? Because you talk a little bit about that in the book. And you talk also about, in relation to that fear, the community around you, as you just eloquently stated, they sometimes actually are working against you. Absolutely, and people that love you most work the hardest Which against is you. bizarre and rings true. Yep. You say in the book, um, amongst the tactical things, don't, don't talk to them about what you're gonna do. Show them what you've done. If you tell me that I'm going to, um, you're in your life right now, you're like, you know what, I'm gonna become a world-class gymnast. Your partner is like, well, first of all, you're 40. <laughs> Second of all, I had no idea you wanted to be in the gymnasium on the bars, but I get it, okay. Have a good, good, good luck at that one, okay. And then, so you're automatically in this position of starting from the trunk. And it's fun to talk about our dreams. What I find, especially for people, like what, I'm, what I think what Jason's really getting at here is these hard conversations because this picture that I just painted is, seems very romantic. It seems impractical, it seems naive, maybe even foolish to pursue it. I'm trying to paint a picture that creativity is the most practical thing that you can do. Why? Because it is the mechanism how we do Every single thing is creative. We are creating machines. It's what separates us from all the other species on the planet is we can actually decide. We can use our head, our heart, we can put all these faculties together. And right now we're co-creating this moment with you out in the audience. If someone stood up and started clapping and cheering and jumping around, I'm just waiting for someone to do that. <laughs> just kidding. Well, we're like, pretty, pretty close to the tenderloin. Yeah, so. that, that, would, that would Thank have you. an effect on the outcome of this moment, yeah. right? So we're co-creating this moment. Once you start to realize, these are the fundamental principles of the book. One, every person's creative. Two, creativity is a muscle. The more you create, the more muscles you have to create. And it leads to three, which is what we're really talking about here. It's in small, daily, creative ways. When you understand that what we're doing right now is creative, when you can understand small, creative actions actually give you an understanding that you have agency over your life. It's just creativity at a different scale. And when that hits you square in the middle of the forehead, you're just like, Pfft. 
it makes me want to say, all right, so now get creating, go strengthen those muscles. Cause it's literally the same muscle. And we want to make, make we want to dismiss it. We want to say, oh, there's all these reasons I can't, but go back to your question. That is why creativity is literally the most practical thing you can do is figure out how to create your life. And doing it in small doses and doing it across genres or mediums was something in the book you spent a lot of time giving examples of. Uh, in one of them, you talked about maybe playing a couple of chords badly on a guitar before doing photography uh, or doing some photography before writing, just small creative exercises um, to kind of get things flowing. It's almost a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awareness practice as much as it is What does it mean, else. awareness practice? You're aware that what you're doing right now is creating. If you're cooking a meal tomorrow night for your family, for those of you that, that do the cooking in your family, or maybe you're just preparing a meal for yourself, if you decide in that moment that you can, instead of making the same old spaghetti sauce, if you, if you put a little twist to it, you throw some herbs in there, you have just done something that's a little bit different. And we have this, we have a brain that's the brain. It's a two million year old organ. It's not meant to keep you happy. It's meant to keep you alive. And when you get it out of its, the default mode of operating just long enough for it to realize that, wait a minute, I made a decision right there. Mm. I chose to change the pizza sauce or the spaghetti sauce. You, and then when you are tasting it or experiencing it, there's a, an awareness and there's a, a either slight bit of joy or horror or fear. Like, oh my God, what if it, like I put too much pepper in there, it's gonna taste terrible and now my family's not gonna like it. My two-year-old doesn't like spice and I'm gonna, you know, there's, it's not always good. But you're alive in that moment. But you're alive in that moment and you're making choices. And wow. it's, this, it's this sort of awareness that you are driving your bus and your bus is not driving you. So instead of making the scrambled eggs tomorrow, like we all did, our assignment is to do a spin on scrambled eggs tomorrow. Do something slightly different tomorrow morning. Slightly different. And then, and this, this is like the awareness part. I think it's a good question. You just, you're in, in that moment when you do something different, you're like, I just did something different. And you say, how did that feel? Hmm, it felt different. And actually having a life where you're consistently feeling different, this is why it goes back to fear. And this is a long roundabout sort of way of getting there. But all of the best stuff in life, and I mean all of it, is on the other side of fear. Not sure what it'd be like to have a child. You have a child in your hands all of a sudden, it's yours, and you're like, they didn't give me any instructions yeah. for this. Like that's, but that's where the richness of life truly manifests itself. And so this little, like the pasta sauce exercise or the scrambled eggs exercise is just helping you understand that I'm uncomfortable and to be able to start to be comfortable being uncomfortable in the most simple way. I am not asking you to move to Paris. This is not what creativity is. Move to Paris, buy some oil paints, wear a beret, get a new set of friends. None of that is what I mean. In our culture, we think about art equals creativity. No, art is a very small subset of creativity. Making the eggs tomorrow for breakfast, the pasta sauce, what we're doing here in this moment, that's creativity, creativity with a capital C. When you look at artists out there and what they've accomplished, which ones do you look at and say, this is something uh, that I should be doing or there's some note here I should take? In the book you mentioned a couple, but I'm yeah. curious um, which ones you, you look to for your own inspiration and why. I'm often 
asked this in the in the context specifically of photography. That's I'm a photographic master. That's the the um, I've spent most of my life learning photography and and operating at a very high level in that world. I can say that confidently. Uh, it um, I'm always asked like who are your photography heroes? My heroes aren't photographers. Mm. And that's why I don't actually, it's not really about naming any particular artist because of the work that they do as in the end product. What I look at as is people who are operating in this way that I know creates incredible results, which is people who are willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. People who have trusted their gut, even in the face of extreme like pressure to see the world a different way, like that creates extraordinary results. So for me, these people are people who are um, willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. People who are um, following the compass. Yeah, it, it really is. It's as simple as following the compass. And I do find that when people, and this this is true, you'll know this very very easy for you to jump on board with this, Jason. That most entrepreneurs that come to you and say, Jason, I've got this great idea. I see this hole in the market. When someone says that to me, I'm like, bro, hold on just a second here. You're not chasing a, a hole in the market, are you? Because when you do and you don't care about it and it's dog food or it's the, uh, the thing, the little caps that go on top of, uh, of telephone poles down 3rd Avenue or it's some weird esoteric thing that is an opportunity in the marketplace. When you see people chasing that, I hope you roll your eyes because I'm like, stuff's going to get really hard and I want to know how passionate you are about dog food. Like, are you re do you really care? Are you working on something that matters to you? And most people aren't. And so the people who are working on things that they love deeply, that it, for, it creates a problem for them or an opportunity for someone that they love to solve a problem that's actually meaningful to them, those are the people that I gravitate towards. You have to want it. You do. And it's, it's like, I'm and trying to not be cliche, but the, the reality is that the people who are working on things that genuinely bring them joy... And this is the, the next follow-on question that as soon as I say that, everyone's like, I don't know what brings me joy. Anybody think, thinking that right now? Like, oh, yeah, exactly. Thank you for being like honest. Honest. That's a really, and to me, that's maybe the scariest thing, right, is you have to sit alone in your own head and say, I have lost my own understanding of what brings me joy. I do not know what to do. If I had... To, I have five minutes to write it down and there was a gun to my head. What would I write down? And you still are blank. What do you do in that moment? Do you just try anything and just rotate a series of random things that come to your mind? I try and steer people towards their past because uh, we've all had these moments of effortless wow. brilliance and joy. Um, and I do encourage people to look to look back into their past or if you can't, there's nothing that just jumps out at you. Like, what are you curious about now? What if I could give you all of the information tomorrow and you had it? What would you, what area of the universe would you want to explore? And in those moments where you have now five or eight of these things and you say, I don't know which one to do. I talk about in intellect or sorry, action over intellect. We try and think our way to the perfect thing. Oh, okay. I'm going to apply effort. So I need to make, it needs to make money. It needs to be, uh, it needs to make me look good in front of my friends. It needs mm. to... Uh, external, external. Yeah, external validation, validation, validation. And what I'm trying to get people to do is like, no, like, I'm just going to do something. Because as soon as you start doing the thing, right, all you need to do to be the noun is do the verb. You want to be an entrepreneur? Start making a business. You want to be a musician? Start playing chords on a guitar. 
and you will know really soon, like, does the guitar bring me joy? You're like, no, I'm terrible, and it doesn't feel good to play it, and I don't, oh, I'm actually, the guitar's upside down. <laughs> and then, but there is something, because then it's easy, like, okay, great, I can set the guitar down. And then you can go on to something. And, and then once you break through this little crust, you're like, wait a minute, okay, this is foolish. There are actually things that I like. You know what I love? I love um, creating an app and watching a child learn on an iPad app that I just developed with my friends in, you know, in the, uh, you know, the little joint down the street where we're all kind of working on our own little thing. That brings me a ton of joy. You're like, okay, great. There's something there. Go spend X amount of time doing that thing. And the point is that you, it's only through doing that you will truly find the thing. And if you are, if you have questions or you're curious, or you're not sure, just go do it. And you're going to know real quick. Don't overthink it. Yeah, we, we way over-intellectualize. And I'm telling you, you can't think your way out of this. And this is where this difference between head and heart, rational, and we, we default to rational thought. we like, oh man, this is like you need to use your noodle and the people have good noodles, they're better at this stuff. I totally disagree. I think that this is slow, prone to bias, prone to all these impressions that are people from, from people who really, really love us and have programmed us. And right here, this is the thing that you really have the most direct access to. And I'm not saying ignore this and just do this. I'm saying you should at least use both of them when starting to try and understand what it is that you want to do with your life, this one precious life, or even not to dram dramatic, dramatize it, like to, with tomorrow. I love the Saturday morning exercise. Saturday morning, everyone who is um, normally occupies your time and space on Saturday morning, they're out of the house. You have whatever amount of money you want in your pocket. You, have, you can literally do anything. Saturday morning, no anxiety. Weekends, not, you got a couple of days till the weekend. What do you want to do? Most people are like, I want to take a nap. <laughs> Aside from the nap, what do you want to do? You take wanna, another nap. <laughs> you want to go fly fishing? There's something there. Do you want to maybe be a fly fishing guide at some point? I'm not, again, this is just a thought experiment. I'm not asking you to hang your hat on the next 20 years of your life. I'm saying no constraints, Saturday morning, anything you want to do, what do you do? There's a little bit of joy in that moment. And that's where you should look. That's like following your, your curiosity, if you will, instead of the thing that you were supposed to do. So you're listening to that compass, and then you have a bias towards action. You say, I'm going to just try something. We try to work through it. Um, some things are just inherently very hard. Mark Knopfler talked a lot about how hard the guitar is. And it's not natural. And how he just wanted it so badly that he just kept going. Uh, and eventually, he could play at the top of the guitar and the bottom of the guitar at the same time. And that actually became his signature finger-picking electric guitar style, was him getting through that without a teacher. How do you persevere through, gosh, this sucks, and I'm not good at it. Maybe I have some joy, but I'm also experiencing a lot of pain. Two, it's a two by two. Do I love it? Is it working? Do I love it? Yes. Is it working? No. Okay, you decide how much, do you love it more than it's not working? If, if so, keep doing it. Do I love it? No. Is it working? No. 
That's me and the guitar. Should I continue to play the guitar? No. This is just a very simple two-by-two, right. which is painfully simple, almost to like a, uh, I don't know, it's, it feels inauthentic, but it's a great radar to decide if you should keep doing it. And if at the end of the day you want to be a guitar player, I could continue to push through the part where I don't like it and it's not working because I have this vision of myself. Okay, I, I really, uh, then, then you're like, there's a little dialogue in there and you know that it's something that you actually want. The point is going back to action. If you start playing the guitar and you just hate it, Mostly, I find that people are like, okay, that was harder than I think it's going to be, but I really, really want to be able to swoon my partner, just break this little guitar out and, and play it for him or her and have a romantic date. Like, to me, there's the, these are cl they're clues. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know enough to take the next step. One of the things in the book you spend a decent amount of time on uh, is community and the importance for the artist, for the creative, uh, once they find something that just, you know, they got a little bit of that love, maybe it's a little hard, but they're making that forward progress, they're following the compass, it's the guitar, it's poetry, it's photography, it's cooking, whatever it happens to be, finding your tribe, finding those people, it's something that you seem to have innately as a skill, and you get very tactical, at least probably the most tactical part of the book, is this kind of go-to market community building. For somebody who just doesn't even know what finding your community or building it means or where to start, how does somebody who's baking or playing guitar or doing poetry or doing photography, how do they find that tribe? How do they become part of it? And what's the benefit of being part of a tribe? I'm going to expand the definition or coding or doing science or all of these things are creative, right? Like it's not just the art stuff. I want to make sure we're, sure. we're putting an exclamation Could be business. There. Could be business. Building a business is one of the most wildly creative and dynamic things I've ever done. Why do people not think it's creative? I've always wondered, like people look at business people, is it because of the capitalistic overlay that money kills the creativity's purity? Yeah, and the reality is I think that is a travesty, that is a tragic aspect of our culture that we've equated art with creativity. Building a business, ask Sir Richard Branson. You know, he's been a personal mentor of mine, he's in the book, I tell a lot of stories about it's like, I don't think anyone here would think that he's not creative. So why do some people get that moniker and not others? Usually it's the moniker that you label yourself with. Hmm. And there's a bazillion examples of I'm, I'm not creative or I'm told I'm not creative. And we can change that programming really quickly. And I talk a lot about mindset in the book. And these are stories that we tell ourselves and we know. Just go to any first grade classroom. Who wants to come up to the front of the room and draw me a picture? How many hands go up? Every hand is up. Boom, kids are like, yes, they're clamoring, getting on their desks to come to the front of the room and draw a picture. Ask the same question in sixth grade, ask the same question in when they're juniors or seniors in high school, reduced by 50%, reduced by 50%. And that is just the most simple litmus test to like, when do we have creativity and when we don't? It's this culture that's sort of training it out of us. And it's fine because it's, util it's, it's utilitarian to be great. Go to school, start at this grade, and you're going to learn this here and this here. And th this, is, this is a 19th century model based on the Prussian factory. This is not the best way to educate children. Is anyone misunderstanding this? <laughs> why, why do we still have this? It's convenient. 
It's a system. It's a, it's, it, it works okay. It does a pretty good job of babysitting most people. Again, what it's trying to make everybody is average. And there's no evil genius, but this is just the product of the system. And I'm not saying ignore the system. I'm saying be wise enough to the system such that you can take it upon yourself to program the parts that you don't get from these sources and to tell yourself words matter. Every single person in here, you're wildly creative. Wildly creative. This is part of what separates you from every other species on the planet and from the person next to you. You have the ability to put two new ideas together and form something new and useful tomorrow. So rant aside, we're going to go back to like, what was the question? It wasn't about, about community. It was about community. And so how to get there. So I think this is also something that's wildly misunderstood. And one of my great joys in writing the book, I fr the framework for the book is the first section. It's in four sections, and it's, it's the acronym is IDEA, I-D-E-A. And what this is is it's a creative process that works for baking a cake or for designing your life. I is for imagine what's possible. We are largely, we have run out of an imagination because our culture tells us you should be these eight things. And if you're not a doctor, lawyer, professional athlete, accountant, or something else, then, you know, it's, then it's okay, you take the take the next layer down, taught to imagine what's possible, de-design a set of behaviors such that if you did these things, you would be closer to what you imagined. E is just executing in that vision. And A, this term is amplify, which is all about community. And I think it's smart of you to ask this question because it's the most misunderstood part, I think, of success in anything. We are taught that the cream rises to the top, right? that good work gets noticed. I am a professional artist and have been my entire adult life. I know that to be not true. I know some of the most crazily talented people that made this art in their parents' basement. No one ever saw it. They didn't want it or they were unsure of how to manage it or manifest it. And where are they now? Still doing that stuff or, they've give, or worse, they've given up because they were believing this bit that the cream rises to the top. It's not true. Everything, and I mean success in anything, inside of an organization uh, where you're a PM at Google, finding success or creating success, rather I hate the term finding success, creating success is not just about how good your ideas are, it's about your ability to communicate these ideas. And it's about your, idea, your, your ability to, it's, it's the people skills that go along with um, bringing people along with your ideas, sometimes in a very caring and gentle way, and sometimes in a, like, you know, brick on the side of the head sort of way. And it's the ability to connect the dots, most importantly through human connection, hmm. that provides a, what I like to think of as a really fertile bed for our biggest and best ideas. And that only happens through community. We are, whether we like it or not, we are social animals, right? And if we want an idea to fly, we have to do things like bring people along or be able to communicate those ideas, or at least go back to show, don't tell. If you show someone that you love what it is that you're doing through doing it, rather than saying, I, I'm going to be, so I'm going to go back to this gymnast. I'm yeah. going to be a gymnast. But if you just wake up every morning and you're walking around the house on your hands and you did that for six months, your partner's going to be like, wow, I had no sort idea. Of. Yeah, and then you start going to CrossFit, and you're doing like muscle ups, and you're you know swinging on the parallel bars. Like, 
that's the best way to show someone to yeah. get them to respect, or especially someone who's close to you. Don't tell them how you're going to change your life and become this gymnast at 40. Just go start working in the gym and hanging out and like doing pull-ups and walking on your hands. And then they're going to think it's neat rather than, you know, trying to talk you out of doing the thing that you love. I realize we're covering a couple different threads here, so I'm going to go back. That's the idea. Yeah, okay, good. Keep threading. Keep thread. Um, community is, there, there are two ways I like to encourage people to think about community. And again, all I'm doing here from the stage and from writing this book is deconstructing what worked for me and didn't work for me. And the other successful people you know, because you have quite a roster of successful friends. And it's really my friends that I've done the most like work on, like what is working for them and what is not working for them. And it just so happens that this process, I could not find a world where my most successful friends and my own experiences where they found success and they didn't use this sort of system of imagine, even if you do it intuitively, imagining, designing, ex like executing and then amplifying. And the most misunderstood, again, to bring us full circle is amplifying, is, is, is building community. There's two ways I want you to think about community. One is there are communities that you join. Right now there is, um, there is a community for people who knit orange sweaters. And the cool thing about the internet is you can find that community in like two minutes and you can join it. And there is a community for damn near everything that you want to do in life. I think that's cool. This is part of what made, the, you know, made this part in culture a very unique and exciting time for these ideas in particular is that there's communities everywhere. Now there's online communities and there's also like tonight, we, this is community right here. You're curious enough about, creative, uh, about creativity to show up eyeball to eyeball. There are other like-minded people in the audience and you know, maybe if I'm lucky enough, um, I will get to shake your hand at the end of the night and sign a book. Take a and, selfie, maybe. Yeah, exactly. There, there, we will connect, and there's value in connecting because we're social animals. Go back to that. So there's communities that you can join, and then there's also this other thing that's really cool and misunderstood is that there's a community that you have to make around your world. Chloe, you made a, a community around your art around music. People show up to see you perform. And if they didn't know you were performing, if you didn't tell them or you didn't sing in front of them, they would never know. So when you start to join other communities, you learn a lot about what community does and you meet other people, people that can help you, inspire you, give you ideas, pointers, point you in a direction. And it also gives you courage to start building a community around your own work. This is the same thing if you work at, as that PM at Google as if you're trying to be a guitar player or if you're trying to be a surgeon. Like all of these things require that you both join other communities and learn and start to create a community around you, the person, around the ideas that you want to see manifest in the world. Is it promotion that artists and creativity abhor in some way because it feels inauthentic it feels cheap, um, or is it that people are just uncomfortable talking about themselves? Here you are, you wrote this book, you're an artist, and here you are singing for your supper, hoping people will read it. You don't have too much pride in that. You want them to read the book. You don't feel guilty about it. When you do work that you truly love, I think it helps you love sharing that work. Ah. And, and I think this is... a 
this is the part where like getting really in tune with what it is you want to do. And I'm not talking in only this sort of spiritual, woo, I'm talking about if you want to be successful, work on shit that you actually care about. We can be in this like soft, fuzzy space or we can say, here's the results of the test. People who work on stuff they care about are more successful. So you might as well work on stuff that you care about. And success, I'm really meaning fulfillment when I'm saying success because you can have all the money in the world and not be fulfilled. I'm talking about fulfillment. So if you really want to be fulfilled, which is ultimately part of happiness and the meaning of life, you might as well get practical. And the, that practicality, that's this ruthless practicality that we're taught that creativity is like, whoa, man, it's out there and we're all... No, it, this, it could be this ruthlessly effective way of focusing this one precious life that you have. So. Uh, was it community that we were still talking about? Well, we're kind of bouncing around, but I, I think promotion of promotion. your work is, I think you explained it perfectly, which is if the compass is telling you this is your life's work, and if you're enjoying it and you have that joy, well, then it doesn't feel smarmy or cheap to promote it. You're just authentically talking about what it is that's important to you and that you wanted to see in the world, right? Great. And it's actually, you nailed it, Jason. It's a spectrum, too. Like, talking about the spaghetti sauce, like, do you really need it? Like, I'm talking about, like, the book. I'm, I feel very comfortable saying, boy, I put years of my life into this, and it took me 20, 30 years to figure out how to write it, and then two years to actually do it. And so there's that part of it. But then there's the part of the spaghetti sauce. And it's not necessarily that you have to stand on the counter in the kitchen and say, everyone come eat my spaghetti. You could do that. That'd be cool. I'm sure your five-year-old would go like, okay, this is cool. I'm going to go check out mom's spaghetti sauce or whatever. But if you, if you are um, celebrating or respecting whatever it is that you've done, it feels different to me. And in serving the people who are at the whole range of the desire to put themselves out there, this, this is a really common thread when you deconstruct it. It's if you're doing something that you love and you, you, you personally got value from it, then helping somebody else see the value that you got or the value you wanted to create for someone else becomes easier. And then I think there's something, there's a, another little, um, a little spice there, and that is promotion is a very specific thing. And that is what a movie star does when the movie is coming out. That is what an author does when they're on book tour. This is promotion. I'm going specifically, you're here, there's no ambiguity. You're here to hear me talk about my new book, and I'm here to tell you about it. This is not actually building community. This is what I call 50% of the equation. Well, let me break it down. We're taught that 100% of the equation is make great work, and it will find its way in the world. That is bullshit. Then we're, we're taught to believe, oh, you gotta make great work and you gotta promote it. I'm saying that's also bullshit. Where you draw the line is that's 50% of the work. Creating the work and promoting it. This is a very narrow time constrained promotion. Um, Keanu Reeves promoting his, his next film is gonna be weird, but it's gonna be out there. He's, he, he's gonna be- I don't be, know, John Wick 3, pretty good. He, he's going to be on a promotional tour soon. The other 50%, what I call success in the book, or the other 50%, I think a better word is fulfillment, is in the community part. These people, every person, is building community while they're doing all this other stuff. 
And if you're creating community, cultivating community, looking for people who are like-minded, wanting to learn, wanting to share your ideas, get together eyeball to eyeball, this is 50% of success. 50%. And you're like, wait a minute, I know that one person who was really talented. No, nope, they were building community. Even if it was community that you didn't understand how they were building, even if it was their the community at work when they were, you know, uh, going out for drinks with their boss at the end of the day or helping somebody understand the new mechanic for the UI or like there's a constant, the people who are most fulfilled and most successful in life, they're constantly cultivating community. And what's great about a book, this is your second, correct? It's my third, third. but no one's really counting because this is the first book where you like, my other books were photo books ah. and I love, them very, yeah, I love them very much, uh, but this is like a completely different animal. Well, and I got that sense. The book has so much authenticity and soul to it, and it's very easy to be cynical. Um, it's very easy to be cynical, period. Period, full stop. Very easy to be cynical about books, because you and I had this conversation. Just a lot of our friends write books, and we say, well, why'd you write the book? And they say, well, I wanted to be an expert. I wanted to be a subject matter expert, so I wrote the book, so you all have to suffer through me becoming one. And you are a subject matter expert on this through all those losses and wins and all that suffering and all that refinement. And you really take so much time to tell your own story and you give very tactical advice in the book. And this is why I think the book is a must read. Um, and I, I think you're gonna have an amazing experience with the book over the coming years, which will go something like this. You know, forget about this moment this half of the journey. In two or three years, somebody will come up to you and say, I read your book and uh, I wrote my album and it failed. But you said to keep going. And so I did two more albums and you know what? The third one is, you know, this is my, this is my life's work, right? And, and that really is the, the great thing about these books is you get inside somebody's head and you impact them. And, and this book has that potential. So I really encourage everybody um, to read it. Thank, thank to you. buy it. Thank you for saying those nice yeah. things. Uh, I, I want to say that part of why I wrote it was the other books that I had experienced, and I've consumed, I think, most of them. There's a bunch of, you know, Bird by Bird and The Artist's Way, and there's so many gems out there. They all felt two things for me. One, they were great, but they were also very, very heady. And this conversation is a little bit heady tonight. I acknowledge that. But this... I'm trying to take creativity and make it just super fundamental and super practical. And this is this is anchored in modern pop culture. I'm not pretending that you don't have a job. This does not require a new set of friends or you, you do not have to downgrade your life in any way to have access to creativity. It's totally available to you right in this moment and it's a muscle and you'll get better at using it. So to me, there is like, their creative books were pretentious and they had to do all these exercises and like take notes in the morning and it was like there's the list of stuff I had to do was like so taxing that I couldn't actually access what the book really wanted me to do and so this is um, I like to think of it as in terms of um, it's an ace in that it is it's not a nine of hearts or a six of clubs it's both the low card and the high card in any moment. It's the high card in that creativity is this massive thing that, that underpins the solution to every problem we will ever know. And as I've said many times tonight, it's what separates us and what's, what, what gives us the ability to create our lives. 
And it's also a simple daily habit. It's a simple, practical thing. And so most creative books, had they're, they're, they're bouncing around largely too much in the middle to me. And, and I felt like this was just a huge gap in the understanding and the application of this amazing superpower that we have as humans. Uh, let's give it up for Chase Jarvis. Okay. Now for questions from the audience. Okay. Here we go. This is a great one, actually. I, I love questions. I, I want to do this yeah. all night. I just handcuffed all of you to your chair. You have to stay here for eight hours. We're <laughs> going to talk about creativity questions. Here we go. How do I encourage my partner in their creative work, but still advocate for practicality? Ooh. Great question. I love this question. Um, first of all, I think putting yourself in a position where this new experiment is required to support the family is... That is a false dichotomy. It does not have to be like that. And if you've set up the equation to be that way, you've set it up, I think, to your disadvantage. So I like setting things up in a way that is not where practicality is not the lens through which you view it. Because if you view everything through practicality and you everything through data, then what are you left with? A very homogenous experience. So I, I really like the idea of separating practicality from how you want to spend some of your time. It doesn't have to be all your time, but you should be able as a human to carve out, even with the kids and with the mortgage and with the job, you should be able to carve out some time to create the life you want. Otherwise, what are you doing? Okay, so that's thing one. Thing two on that same question is, goes back to if you make this declaration about becoming a gymnast at 40 versus you actually just swinging on the monkey bars and having a great time, when your partner hears you say you want to be a gymnast at 40, they scratch their head. When they watch you swinging on the monkey bars, or Chloe, when they watch you singing, they're like, this is awesome. I love, what's that? True story. True story. And uh, Chloe will be doing two numbers at the end. Thank yes. you, Chloe. Um, what's the most valuable piece of advice someone's ever given you? Take a moment to think that one through. The most valuable piece of advice, or I'll expand, the two or three most valuable pieces no, no, of advice I, you've ever gotten. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a short, little short story. So I was somewhere maybe in the seven-year-old age range, and I was at a wedding. And at this wedding... Um, I am observing these traditions and I'm not, it's a little bit of a head scratch to me and I'm like, I'm in my little tuxedo, you know, and uh, whatever role I had played and I'm still, I'm still picking up on the tradition. I'm like, okay, everyone's getting married. Okay, cool. There's this thing. Okay, so she's going to throw this bouquet over her shoulder. And so she's doing this. It's like, and then I see over here a bunch of women with their arms outstretched going like, oh, throw it, throw it. And I'm like, she's going to throw that bouquet. And little old seven-year-old me was like, here we go. I totally got this. So one, two, and then I'm just running man. Here running we go. Running man across the, across the dance floor. Sure enough, she throws the bouquet and I'm fully outstretched like, <laughs> and I, yes. crickets, <laughs> 250 people going. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> did you spike it? <laughs> no, because I'm starting to figure it out. And this uh, is, this is this don't is, spike the bouquet. <laughs> do not spike the bouquet. But I know something is very wrong at this moment. I do not know what, because I am seven. But I know something is very wrong. And so this is it's it's a roundabout way of advice. But I see my dad 
walking across the dance floor. Oh, boy. My dad is a policeman. Right. Okay. <laughs> You're Literally about to get a ticket. In his, he's dressed in a suit, but I see his cop uniform basically coming right at me, pulls me to the side, grabs the bouquet from my hand, hands it over for a redo. How embarrassing is that? Redo. Redo, yeah. And so, and he pulls me over to the side, and I'm just, you know, just tears streaming down my face. I haven't, like, I'm just... And he leans down to me, and he says, great catch. Aww. And so the best advice to me is words matter. And the words that matter most are the ones that you say to yourself. And we often limit what's possible with our life, what's possible to change our career, to change who we are, to change what we stand for, our values. And we're, we're constantly programming ourselves. And so whether it's from my father or the words that you say to yourself, words matter and choose them wisely. Mm. I think tone, right, too? Like your dad said it in a kind tone, didn't he? Yeah, it was a little bit of a like, that was pretty awesome, <laughs> which I respect. Uh, yeah, I was getting a little nervous with that story. Like, Where is this going? <laughs> oh, boy. So, how is this advice lesson? Uh, last question we have time for. How do you prioritize your time? Work, life, family, etc. cetera. Mm. I, I don't understand, uh, it was gonna sound weird at first, I don't understand balance, I understand harmony. Because mm. there isn't a world where, like, we want San Francisco to be this perfect balance of where we can take care of the people who need taken care of, and you can also be wealthy, and you can, you can have everything in perfect balance that doesn't exist. I want to be in a world where my home life is perfect, my work life is perfect, I'm in peak physical condition, and the world is at peace. None of these things ever exist at the same time, but we're all sort of managing them a little bit. So I don't, I don't love the idea of sort of work-life balance. I love the idea of harmony. So one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because I hate books that say, start with perfect thing A, add perfect thing B, C, and D, and then you get perfect thing E. Who knew? One of my favorite books, and part of what I thought about a lot while I was writing this is a book by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm. And as a first-time CEO in a venture-backed world, this was a, an, a book that changed my life because the first chapter is how to fire your best friend, how to tell your investors you lost all their money. How These are like really sort of hard things. And so the book, I feel like, does a very honest job, and this was very hard. This is the hardest part for me in the writing of the book. Just a really honest job about starting with mediocre things and making the best of what you have with what you have right now. And that, to me, is all we're all trying to do, and no one's ever balanced. It's always just a little bit of a game where we're trying to get all the balls in the air, and I just want everyone to understand that that's what it means to be human. Go back to the words that you're telling yourself. If you're telling yourself that you're abnormal, that's, I mean, normal, I don't love the word normal, but you're, that you're a bad person because you're not the perfect parent and the greatest employee and the best boss and all those things, that's okay, nobody is. So. I like to think of how I use my time is trying to put it all together in the best way I can and nothing's ever singing uh, all at the same time, but we do the best we can with what we have. On that note, give it up one more time for Chase Jarvis. Thanks guys. Thanks to the Commonwealth Club. Buy the book and take a selfie with Chase. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. 
Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative. 